everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. So if you have issues of things like gas or bloating, constipation, or loose stools and urgency, any of those kind of symptoms, GERD, or really just any GI symptom you can think of, I almost can tell you, you're, it's not a matter of um, if you're going to have period issues, it's a matter of when. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're talking about a period problem that so many of us experience at one time or another. That is heavy bleeding. Our guest today is my friend, period expert, Dr. Saru Bala. Dr. Bala is a naturopathic doctor specializing in women's hormonal health with a focus on PMS, heavy bleeding, and period pain. Another fun fact is that Dr. Bala and I were classmates at Bastyr University, so this feels like a reunion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bala. It does. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I actually remember one time I had a shift with you. I think it was Dr. Cullen's shift. Women's health. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's been a while since we were on that clinic shift together. So it's about time we caught up. And I think maybe that's where our mutual love of women's health started was back in those clinic shift days. Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely Definitely a fun place to see lots of women. (laughs) That's right. Well, I've been really excited to talk to you about heavy bleeding. I know this is something you see a lot in clinical practice. And this question comes up all the time because our perspective is different on heavy bleeding. I think based on what our periods have looked like uh, historically, what the, the menstrual history of the women in our family looks like, whether we've had a baby. So this question comes up all the time in my DMs how do I even know if I have heavy bleeding? Will you kick us off by setting the record straight and letting us know what counts as heavy bleeding? Yes. So there's a lot of different ways that you would know if you have heavy bleeding. So if you are bleeding through your pads and your tampons, if you are waking up overnight to change your products, if you're having to double up on your products, if you are filling your pads and tampons more than every one to two hours, if you're bleeding more than seven days, um, or if you can actually track how much you're bleeding, if you use like a menstrual cup or something, if you're bleeding more than 80 milliliters in a period, all of those are indications that you might be having a heavy period. So any, any one of those, and I know that's kind of vague and, and you're like, how do I know if, you know, I'm bleeding more than 80 milliliters, if I'm not wearing a menstrual cup and usually you can kind of measure how many tampons or pads you go through. I always ask the women that I work with how much they're bleeding by how many pads or tampons they, they fill up. So not change. Cause I know a lot of women like to just change them throughout just for cleanliness, but how many are actually saturating, how many are actually filling. And we can kind of get an idea based off of that. Um, but any of those other symptoms are also a great way of saying, Hey, you might be bleeding a little bit more than we want you to be. Isn't it interesting how We have so normalized heavy bleeding. I was thinking back to being like a preteen and and having people say the advice of, oh, if you have your period and you're going to bed, just wear two pads, like, because you might soak through without being like, okay, that's not normal that you're bleeding through your clothes all night. Exactly. Exactly. Or I remember I had, I always had a pair of extra like bottoms in my car with me anytime yeah. because I didn't know if I would need an extra pair because I was going to bleed through something. Absolutely. Or how many of us have done 
the friend check where you say, I'm going to walk in front of you and I just need you to check to make sure that I haven't had any breakthrough. Yes. God. Now that I've like stopped normalizing all this stuff, I forgot about all that trauma from when we were teens. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a universal experience, which I think really says a lot about what we're normalizing on that topic. I sometimes fantasize about creating a talk show that's called, is this normal? Where people just call in and ask questions about their period. And then we talk through it and figure it out and unpack it together. So I thought you and I could take a minute and do a mini episode of, is this normal? (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Okay, so caller one on the line. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We have to talk about clotting because Mm -hmm. I think clotting and heavy bleeding go hand in hand. I get so many questions about how do I know if this level of clotting is normal? So that's our first, that's our first installment. What What do you think about clotting? I would say if they're bigger than about the size of a quarter, definitely too big. Even still, I, I like to tell people if it's accompanied with heavy bleeding, if you're bleeding, if you fit any of that previous criteria, if it's that heavy and you're having lots of clots, I would say definitely not normal. If they're painful to pass, not normal. Um, if you're just having so many, like if every single time you're changing your products, if you're, um, noticing really big chunks of tissue, that's not normal. And I think I want to say a lot of people ask me like, how do I know if I'm having clots? And that's actually a question I remember asking my OB when I was younger. And I, I was like, you'll know when you have them, I have totally had them and had no idea that I was having them because no one explained what they were. I thought it was just a normal part of having a period. You don't see what other people's period looks like. So it's just those chunks of tissue that you see when you're changing your tampon, or if you're wearing a pad, you might see it on top of the pad or in the toilet, you might see little chunks of tissue. That is what a clot is. And so they're not always going to be a circle piece of tissue falling out. That's the shape of a quarter. So it really, it might be like stringy and long and that's okay. If it, if you could roll it up and just be the size of a, a coin, how big would it be? That's kind of what you're estimating and looking for. That's actually a great point of starting at step one, how do I even know what it, what is clotting? And sometimes it's, it's pretty subtle, right? Sometimes be such fine pieces of tissue that it can be really hard, especially if the color of your menstrual blood is dark, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard to differentiate. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Or if you, you know, a lot of people who wear um, menstrual cups, they're like, I don't know if I have clots because they just dump it right out and they don't really look. So definitely check and see what's going on down there. I'll also just maybe take this another step back. It's the similar to how we talk about bowel movements is I think that it's maybe pretty common that people take out their tampon, take out their pad, take out their menstrual cup, and they don't look at it. Similarly to how they have a bowel movement and then they don't look and then they come see a naturopathic doctor and we say, oh, you got to look. Yeah, you have to look Look at everything that comes out of your body always and forever. You're always going to want to know. A lot of juicy information there. So, okay, (laughs) next caller in the is this normal series let's talk about spotting okay because this is a really common one and this could be spotting before you get your full menstrual flow or spotting maybe after your full flow is finished Mm -hmm. tell us your initial thoughts about what we should think about when we see spotting either before after yeah so i think 
after is a little confusing for some people. And, and I know with my patients and the people that I work with, they get really confused with. They're like, I had this many days of bleeding for my period. And then this many days of spotting after. And so once you're done with like the full flow, sometimes you have a few days where you just trickle and that's still part of your flow. I consider that part of your flow. I wouldn't consider that spotting because it's just kind of that old blood kind of coming out. It comes out a little bit slower and that's totally normal. The spotting that I would consider spotting is if it's nowhere near your period, if it's in the middle of your cycle, that's spotting and you're seeing bleeding or any kind of blood. Um, and then before your cycle even start, your period even starts, if you're noticing spotting, I count that as spotting and then your period. And so kind of just differentiating the two and also knowing what, what is bleeding, what is spotting and what is normal there. So normal to kind of quote unquote spot towards the end of your period and then Prior to your period starting, I want to know how many days before your period starts are you spotting? Because if it's more than a day or two, then it's really kind of indicative of, hey, let's look at your hormone levels. Let's see what's going on with progesterone. Let's see what's going on with estrogen and all of that. Absolutely. And maybe someone is listening and they're thinking, oh, I've always wondered what to count as day one of my period. And so for me, day one is the first day of full flow. So those light little, like need a panty liner days before your full flow starts, that's spotting to me. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yep. I would count that as spotting and not your full period. So yeah, when you see bright red bleeding and you need more than a panty liner, that is when I would say that's the first day of bleeding. I love that you brought up the progesterone piece because that's usually my first order of business when someone is having spotting before their period is to think about, okay, well, what's going on? How long is your luteal phase? Do you need some progesterone support? Is your progesterone getting high enough and then dropping off super fast? So it can't support your endometrial lining or is your progesterone not getting high enough at all? Exactly. Whole road of investigation we can go down, but that's why it's so important to pay attention. Cause then we know how to ask the the next right questions. Right. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's better for you if you know what's going on with your cycle so that we can best support you. Because if you have no idea how long your luteal phase is, what happens in your phases, then it's harder for us to support. And then we have to dig for that information and it takes longer to get to the root cause. Yeah. Well, you've sort of answered caller number three already <laughs> who was calling to ask, is it normal that I need to change my period product during the night? I would say, no, it is not. That is definitely an indication. You might have some heavy bleeding and we want to work on that so that you can sleep all the way through the night. <laughs> Please. For so many reasons, we want you to be able to sleep. Yes. Okay. If anyone else else has, is this normal questions, stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be <laughs> taking callers. So I think we've established heavy bleeding in general is not normal, but now we have to ask, why am I having heavy bleeding? So what are some of the most common causes of heavy bleeding that you see in your practice? For me, it's almost always estrogen levels. And that could be from gut issues. That could be from thyroid issues. That could be from liver issues. That could be from stress. That could be from, um, poor nutrition lifestyle. It could be from so many places that's causing those estrogen levels to be high, but it's almost always because that estrogen is just building up in your body and it's not getting out, right? Estrogen is responsible for building up that endometrial lining. So the more we have, the thicker it's going to get, the more bleeding you're going to have, the more clotting you're going to have. So really focusing on how we can get rid, rid of those estrogen levels from your body is the most important thing that we always like to work on. 
Yeah, we're going to dive into those pieces too. And then, of course, there's all these related conditions that are really driven by estrogen excess, things like endometriosis and fibroids. And so it all is really connected. So when you see a new patient, they have heavy bleeding. What are some of your initial go-to labs to try to tease apart what's happening? Um, I always like to do a full hormonal panel and just see where, first of all, where is your estrogen at in your luteal phase, in your follicular phase, even, um, where's your progesterone at? Is it matching that estrogen? What's going on with your insulin levels? That's one that nobody ever gets checked. Most doctors have no idea how to treat something that's off with insulin. Um, so insulin is one that I really love checking because that often can be a telltale sign that, Hey, your estrogen levels are getting affected by insulin. Um, what is going on with your thyroid thyroid antibodies? Is there an autoimmune component? Because that autoimmune component might be underlying and your thyroid function on your, your normal thyroid tests look totally fine. And that's why it's being missed by your doctors because they're not looking at your antibodies. So really doing a full thyroid panel is important. Um, looking at your lipid panel, what's going on with your cholesterol and your triglycerides and your HDL and your LDL, that can also kind of indicate, I often see that in conjunction with high insulin and um, issues with liver function tests all being kind of put together. And then that goes with heavy bleeding. So um, those are kind of the main things I think a lot of providers are missing. And then of course, I always want to check for anemia and get an iron panel done. Where's your ferritin levels at? What's going on with your, um, your CBC, what's happening with your iron levels in general, because if you are really bleeding a lot, you're probably kind of tending towards that anemic picture. So if you feel exhausted, especially at the end of your periods, you might just be bleeding a little bit too much and losing some iron. We see that so often. We have to look at that. And I'm so happy that you mentioned the insulin piece because I agree, this one is missing a lot in patients that have heavy bleeding. So to give some context to our listeners who might not be as familiar with the way that these hormones interact, hyperinsulinemia, so a lot of insulin that's circulating around can upregulate the aromatase enzyme, which irreversibly converts testosterone to estrogen. So now we have all of this estrogen circulating around. And then if we don't have these good pathways that you're going to talk about to excrete the estrogen, now we're in trouble. Now we have so much estrogen around that can bind to our receptors. So I love that you're bringing that up. Um, this is a selfish question because I've always wondered about this. Um, in your patients with heavy bleeding, do you ever look at clotting factors because I, this makes intuitive sense to me, but at, when I've run it on patients that have super heavy bleeding, I've never actually found anything abnormal. Yeah. I haven't seen anything abnormal. I'm not going to say that it's something that I deliberately check, but the ones who have just come to me with those labs, I haven't necessarily seen a correlation. Um, and I don't know if it's cause it's just a normal part of, you know, a period. I have no idea. I haven't seen yeah. that correlation really struggle. I was thought maybe you would have some definitive answer, but like me, it's, I haven't really seen, I haven't really seen a lot of relationship there. So, okay. We have established that we have heavy bleeding. We've done some labs. Let's explore the flip side for a minute because light bleeding is, can also be abnormal, right? So um, what are some reasons that you might see that someone has a very light flow or a flow that I hear this all the time. Like I had my period and it lasted two days. Yep. Yep. I hear that often. And on the flip side of heavy bleeding being due to high estrogen, I usually see that light bleeding is the opposite. You don't have enough estrogen to build enough of a lining to give you that bleed. So that's usually the biggest cause. And again, that low estrogen could be coming from stress, could be coming from a thyroid issue, could be coming from an autoimmune, like it could be coming from anywhere. Why are you not having 
um, enough estrogen to stimulate that lining to have a longer bleed. So really figuring out one, is it estrogen? And two, if it is where, why are you having such low estrogen? What else is going on? Um, is there anything else that you see other than low estrogen that's, that's causing those low? That's like- the main one. That's what I see too. And then for all the reasons that you just mentioned, I think I also see when there's just a chronic energy deficit, maybe we're over-exercising or we're under-eating and then we just have really low gonadotropins. Mm-hmm. We're just not, you know, stimulating our right. ovaries to make very much estrogen. Right, right. So that too, uh, let me go back to the lab question, because I think this comes up with really light periods. I also am looking at hormones. Most of my patients are interested in fertility. So we're doing labs on cycle day three, but that's not always true when you're just measuring, you know, peak estrogen levels. So in your practice, when you're looking at someone who maybe is having more menstrual dysfunction, is there a certain cycle day you're having them go to the lab to do their hormones? I like to do it at the peak of their luteal phase, because that is typically where we can see that imbalance, that estrogen dominance show up is because we know we don't want our estrogen to be too high in the luteal phase. And if it is, then we know that's likely where a lot of those symptoms are coming from. Cause a lot of times women who have issues with heavy bleeding are also having issues with their um, PMS symptoms are having mood swings and irritability and hot flashes and night sweats and waking up at night, having insomnia and so many other issues. And again, that's that estrogen that we can kind of see if it's really high, the bigger, the, the, the bigger, the fall, the more symptoms you're going to have right before your period starts, all those hormones go down. And so when you go from really high to really low, that kind of triggers a lot of things like migraines and PMS symptoms for people. So I like to test it in their luteal phase because that's when most people are having the symptoms too. Okay, great. And that's when we're really seeing that peak of progesterone too, which gives you the ability to look at the estrogen to progesterone ratio, which since I'm looking at more ovarian reserve, I'm not measuring estrogen as much in the luteal phase, but it, it, I, it makes sense to me in this application. Oh, hormones. There's so many. There's so much. Yeah. It fluctuates so much within just a month. It's exciting. Cause I'm like, I never do day three, um, estrogen. Cause I don't, you know, unless I'm doing something for fertility, but it's not as much of my focus. Yeah. I think this is why it's so important to find a provider who's really comfortable with what hormones look like (laughs) throughout the cycle, because it depends when, whenever you draw, you're going to expect certain things. And I'll just add, because it seems like a, a good window. Um, you open the door and mention progesterone and I measure progesterone about seven days after ovulation, as you probably do. That's how we can confirm ovulation. And that's really peak progesterone. And sometimes I'll see patients who have had their blood drawn, let's say on cycle day three, and their progesterone is really low and they are so panicked, like, oh, I'm not making progesterone. And then we have to have this talk of that's normal in your follicular phase. You are going to have barely any progesterone. And so we we don't want to be alarmed by that because that's physiologic, physiologically totally normal. So I think it's so nice when we can look at the map of the menstrual cycle and set expectations and really understand the precision of what we're looking for. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And there's so much variance and there's so many changes that happen just in your own body, let alone from, you know, person to person too. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned gut health as one way that we excrete estrogen. So there's this real connection between the health of our gut and our menstrual symptoms. Will you talk to us a little bit about how GI stuff can then 
turn into period problems. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the biggest thing I'll say is dysbiosis is going to be a huge factor for period issues in general, especially heavy bleeding, because if you are not excreting that estrogen, what's it going to do? It's going to go back in, into your circulation and start stimulating that lining. And so we really want to make sure we're able to excrete that estrogen and dysbiosis kind of gets in the way of that. It causes issues with a strobilome and that leads to that poor estrogen metabolism, that poor estrogen excretion. So if you have issues of things like gas or bloating, constipation or loose stools and urgency, any of those kind of symptoms, GERD, or really just any GI symptom you can think of, I almost can tell you, you're, it's not a matter of, um, if you're going to have period issues, it's a matter of when. So, um, if it goes untreated, if it goes un, um, I guess undiagnosed or managed, then you will eventually down the road, start to see issues with your hormones. So I will say, I feel like people get really overwhelmed when you talk about gut health. They're like, I just don't want to cut out all my favorite foods and all these things. So I, in my practice, I really don't like to make people follow strict or restrictive diets. We don't cut out a bunch of things. The most I've ever told people to cut out is dairy for a few weeks just to try it out, but that's really it. So if we can get you to a place of good gut health without even cutting out a bunch of things, um, uh, I like to do that because we can address the dysbiosis without you feeling like you're changing your whole life around and feeling so stuck in a box of what do I eat today? What am I going to eat if I go out to this party? What am I going to do? It's my friend's dinner. You know, I, I hate that anxiety around what, what am I going to eat? Cause it's real. I mean, I, I don't restrict anything and I still feel like, Oh my God, what am I going to eat for dinner? today? <laughs> so, um, so I like to, kind of ease that as much as possible. And we can figure out your gut health with other ways by addressing it with herbs and other supplements, kind of killing off that bad bacteria, helping to repopulate it. Of course, I do work on nutrition and we talk a lot about fiber and protein and your macros, but I don't like you to feel like you're having to completely adhere to a strict diet. Yeah. How many of your patients who have heavy bleeding or bad cramps are constipated? A lot, a lot. I almost know if you tell me you have constipation, I'm going to be like, I bet you have heavy periods. I bet you have PMS symptoms. (laughs) So even if I don't know about your period health, if you tell me about constipation, you tell me it's, it's kind of a chronic issue. I already can tell, okay, you probably have something going on with your periods. Totally. And it's hard, right? Because Many people will get constipated in their luteal phase because progesterone slows our gastric motility. And so in the luteal phase, it makes so much sense to me. Let's increase fiber. Let's stay really hydrated. Let's take some magnesium if needed to keep things moving. Number one, that's going to help with cramps anyway. But also, I just don't want anyone to get constipated in that last half of their cycle. That pregnancy constipation was real for me. Oh my God. That progesterone just did me in. It is underappreciated as a real, I mean, it will really slow things down. And I think that happens cycle after cycle to people. Mm-hmm. So that awareness I think is really important. And I will, I will say in the, in the right scenario, it's definitely not my go-to, but for some people I will do an elimination diet. If I suspect they have a lot of food triggers, but it's super short-term because like you said, the restriction is so overwhelming. So as a very short-term 
way to find food triggers. I think that that can be helpful, but I agree. It, I always avoid removing entire food groups indefinitely. It's just not helpful. It's not helpful. Yeah. And it's just, it's overwhelming. We don't want that really overwhelming. I'd love to find out what my expert guests are doing in their real life. So when you are in your daily life and you need to take care of your gut, what are some daily practices, approachable, easy go-tos that you're using in your own body? Yes. So recently my husband found this thing called like the 800 grams where you just strive to get 800 grams of any fruits or veggies throughout the day, whatever you want it to be. And so we just have our kitchen scale perpetually out on our counter now (laughs) and we just throw things in there and we're like, okay, how much is this? How much is this with every single meal that we eat, every snack? And so it's definitely helping me to eat a wider variety of um, fruits. Like anytime we go to the store, I'm like, Ooh, like, I feel like I'm just like, I have these like glasses on calculating grams every time I look at fruit now. So it's exciting. Cause I'm like, Ooh, I want to try this fruit. Here's a new fruit we haven't tried. And also with a toddler, you never know what you're going to get as far as, is she going to like this? Or is she going to eat this? So we always have to keep trying something new to keep her, her happy. So Um, that keeps me on my toes as far as variety. And then just trying to get this 800 grams. It's definitely, I won't say that I'm successful every day. It's definitely hard. (laughs) Um, but it is nice to, to have that goal in mind and be like, Oh, did I get my grams today? Am I shooting for this? Or, or like, how can I incorporate veggies or fruits into this meal? So I think just looking at meals with that mindset has been helpful to get a little bit more fiber throughout the day. Yeah. Well, a couple of things are coming up for me. Number one, I don't think I could conceptualize what 800 grams of fruits and vegetables look like. I'm going to have to go Google it after this. It's like four apples. Oh, okay. It's not as much as you might think, but it's definitely probably more than we're getting now. Did you find when you started aiming for that, that it felt like a lot? Oh yeah. I was like, Oh my God, here I am thinking like I do so well with my fiber. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess I was not doing as good as I thought I was. Um, especially cause I never was paying attention to the fiber intake. Like I tried to eat my vegetables with my meals, but I never actually paid attention to how much I was eating. So now that I'm kind of more aware of it, I'm like, Oh, like, where can I include more in my day? So I think it's just a nice way of just being more mindful of how can I get more fiber? Yeah. I really like that. If anyone is listening and they're going to do this, can you take a picture of your 800 grams of produce and send it to us so that we can see what it looks like? Cause yeah, I'm going to need ideas. ideas. <laughs> um, this is great. I'm going to try it. The yeah. second thing that's coming up is you're making a great point that when we say fiber, I think people picture Metamucil. They're oh, like, Oh, yeah. they immediately go to Metamucil. It doesn't have to be gross. It can be really yummy fruits mm-hmm. and veggies. Yeah, we made homemade chicken strips for dinner tonight and we um, made uh, fries in the air fryer and that was our grams, our fries from the air fryer. <laughs> Love. Yeah. That's great. That's so approachable. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other, I think people sometimes will go like, okay, well then I have to, it's like mixing bowls of salad. That's the only way. Great. And so I'm always talking about, you know, fries. That's a yeah. strategy stewed fruits, I think are so delicious and fiber packed. There's just such a variety of ways that we can prepare these foods. It doesn't have to be Metamucil or salad. (laughs) Please. I feel like Metamucil is the least appetizing of the fibers. (laughs) We are not, we are not limited there. (laughs) 
So another body system that you talk about that's very intricately related to the gut is the liver. I think the liver is beloved to many of us who do women's health, but well, I think it's getting more popular, but for a long time, nobody talked about the liver. The liver wasn't glamorous. Will you tell us a little bit about how the health of our liver is related to our hormonal and menstrual wellness? Yes. So your liver is processing everything, everything we eat, everything we breathe, anything that goes on our skin, anything that we drink, our liver is processing all day long. And our environment, sadly, these days is not that clean. So even the air we breathe, we're constantly having to filter it through our liver. And your hormones are a part of that. Your liver has to metabolize all of your hormones. So a lot of times just from what we're eating, what we're breathing, all the products in in our environment, the chair that we're sitting on, the products we put on our body, our lotion, our face cream, our toothpaste, like every single little thing that is in our environment, our liver is already processing. And so when we add to that things like fried food, alcohol, processed foods, our liver is just getting hit, getting hit, getting hit from so many different angles. And so some signs that your liver might need some support would be if you have acne, if you have eczema, if you have psoriasis or any other skin issues, um, KP, those little bumps on your arms. Um, if you feel hot at night, if you get night sweats, if you get hot flashes, which I'm not even going to get into that. I was going to have a whole thing about menopause, but I just want to say all of the symptoms with menopause don't have to be normalized. We, you can transition into menopause without having hot flashes and irritability. Yes. <laughs> um, public service announcement. Yes. Public service announcement. It's your liver. Um, and that being said, irritability is another sign for your liver being a little bit congested, um, feeling hungover really easily. If you do drink alcohol, or if you call yourself a cheap drunk, that is again, your liver, it's just going straight through your liver has to kind of work a little bit harder for that. If you get headaches or migraines really easily, any of those symptoms could be a sign that your liver is screaming for help. Yeah. Ooh, I remember when I was an ND student. I saw, um, I was being, I was going to acupuncture and I saw a traditional Chinese practitioner and we were doing some liver, some liver cleansing. And she said, be prepared to just feel angry and it happens and you're going to work through it and it's fine. But I, it was like finals and we were doing all these things and she was not joking. There (gasps) is this emotional connection with our organs. And so I think that's a fair that you said irritability, anger might be stirred up. Totally. Absolutely. Especially. So if I hear that irritability is one of the main mood swings with your PMS symptoms, then I know, okay, ding, 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 that's your liver. We need to focus on that a little bit more. Very interesting. And when we're thinking about the health of our liver, there's this cumulative effect, right? Because let's say that we're having some wine every night and then we're taking some ibuprofen and Mm. we're doing all these other things that it really makes it hard for our liver to deal with all of these exposures where I always tell people if you're living, you know, fairly liver friendly, your liver's there for a reason Mm -hmm. and it will, it will do its job. It's when we have this constant onslaught of exposures that it starts to slow down. Right. Exactly. And, and just our baseline is kind of that onslaught already. And so that makes it just harder. We don't really have a running start anymore. We're already set back just from birth these days. Cause our liver is just already kind of in overdrive just from the get-go. 
Yeah. Oh, poor liver. We got to show our liver some love on that note. How do you show your liver some love? What do you do to do a little liver support? There's yes. I mean, you can always add more, but I always like to start with removing first, as far as, um, what can we minimize the burden on your liver by removing things like fragrances, alcohol, fried food, um, processed food. Those are kind of the few main things I would say. But for me, I have seen results with women where all we did was change, um, the products they were using. We took out perfumes, we took out plugins, we took out candles, we took out scented products in general, anything that had a smell, we, we got rid of it. And I think we switched to, uh, like stainless steel or glass for their water. Those are the two things that I changed for a few women. I remember, and just that was enough to see changes in their period. So don't underestimate what these small little changes can do over time. Because again, it's that dose. It's every single day. You're getting a little bit, you're getting a little bit, your liver's like, I'm tired. And when we can remove that and take that burden off your your plate, then it's just a little bit nicer and and you don't have to worry about like, what supplements am I taking? Did I take my supplements today? Did, am I using all my um, resources and remembering how many supplements I have to take when really you can just remove some of these things um, that you're kind of not even aware of, like unplug all the things in your walls, get rid of those candles and get some diffusers, like little things like that, that you're not thinking about can make such a big difference. Such a big difference. You just unlocked a memory for me. Maybe it's just because I'm with you in particular, <laughs> but there was this handout that we had at the Bastyr Clinic that I gave to so many patients and it was liver support foods. Oh yeah. It was like burdock root and arugula. It was bitters basically. Yeah, bitter food, yeah. Fibrous foods, root vegetables. I gave that to so many people because who doesn't need a little bit of liver health? Yes, that is also great. Yes, eat your liver support. Yeah, absolutely. Bitter greens are great. Greens in general are great. And so you don't have to feel like you're, you know, like a, I don't know, a pill factory, just swallowing a bunch of pills. You can absolutely eat cruciferous veggies and greens and get your liver support that way. I think that's a great point. Let's say someone is looking for a little escalation and they want a little extra. Are there some supplements that you think about to support liver health? Oh, totally. I would say, um, NAC is always my favorite. My top pick too. I love NAC. It's, it's accessible. It's not as, um, expensive as like things like glutathione. Um, and it's so effective for so many things, right? It helps with fertility. It helps with like, uh, viral issues. It helps with lung stuff, helps with allergies, helps with so many things. So I love NAC is just a great, um, liver support. And then my other favorite one is milk thistle again, so gentle. I use it in breastfeeding moms and I use it in women who have really elevated liver enzymes. So it it has a full spectrum of uses and it has a full spectrum of, um, I guess, I don't know how to say gentleness, (laughs) like it's gentle enough, but also aggressive enough. Another memory has just been unlocked and I'm going (laughs) to go find the recipe after this. But when we were learning herbs, do you remember we made a love your liver syrup? It was like milk thistle and sassafras, but it tasted exactly like root beer. Oh my God. Yes. You would add sparkling water to it. And then we put ice cream in it and made root beer floats. And maybe that was defeating the purpose unclear, but it was medicinal. And I am going to go find that recipe because that was a delicious way. Yeah. Oh my God. With sassafras. Yes. 
I vaguely remember that because I was like, how does this taste like root beer? And that's when I learned that sassafras was like the, the herb that tastes like root beer. That's when we all learned that at that moment. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to go dig through the archives and find yes. that recipe and then we can make it together and mm-hmm. cheers, virtually mm-hmm. cheers each other. I think it's so important. We've covered all of these body systems, our, our hormones, our liver, our gut. And I think this really underscores how important it is to work with a practitioner who's willing to take a body systems approach and not just say, oh, you have heavy bleeding, birth mm-hmm. control pill. Right, exactly, exactly. On your social media recently, you shared a list. It really got my attention. It was three things we should stop doing if we have heavy periods. Yes. And I'm hoping that you'll recap or maybe yes. if they've changed, maybe you've reprioritized, but let's hear your top three. Okay. So we talked about a couple of them already. One of them was fragrances. That is a huge one that I think, again, it's just so underrated. I, I think fragrances are so a part of our environment. Like you get in someone's car, they have an air freshener. There's trash bags that are scented. They used to make, I don't know if they do anymore. I haven't seen them. I hope they stop existing, but they had scented tampons. You remember that? Oh Yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen them. I hope they just took them off the market, but like, why do we need scented tampons? That is just the weirdest thing to me. Um, and so that would be the first one. Just get rid of that. Um, the second one would be stop dehydrating yourself because urine is another way of getting rid of your hormones. So we talked about gut health. We talked about pooping. Um, if you're not, you know, doing that regularly, that's going to be a huge factor. But the other one that again is very underrated is peeing. Peeing is so, so much easier to troubleshoot than pooping because all you have to do is drink more water to get yourself to pee more. Pooping is not as easy, but peeing, just drink a little bit more water. You'll pee a little bit more. Um, and that's a great way of getting rid of your hormones too. Your kidneys are also filtering your hormones. So if you are neglecting that, you are throwing things on uh, out the window that are just too easy. Um, and then the last one is alcohol. I think that is the biggest burden that we have on our liver that is very easily, um, I think, hard, just the hardest for your liver. So I, I think removing alcohol or at the very least limiting how much you drink, I think a lot of times in our culture, we really normalize how much drinking is just a part of our everyday lives. And I want to say, if you are drinking every day, try to limit your drinks to no more than three a week. Um, if, you know, if not less than that, and just that I've seen make huge, huge, huge difference for people in their periods. Those are such good pro tips. I I'm very interested in the alcohol piece because of course, nobody's here to villainize alcohol. I think most of us have a glass of wine from, you know, now and then, and it's fine. But even when we're doing medical intake, we have been taught that normal can be seven to 10 drinks per week, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what we consider to be a normal level. And I've been doing some research about genetic variability and how we can have such variation in how we metabolize alcohol and the damage that it can do to our intestinal barrier function. And there are a lot of people who actually cannot handle alcohol very well. And I think many of us know if we're that person, like we get really flushed, we get really hungover, we feel really unwell when we drink, but it's so part of, you know, the weekend and what we're doing. And I think sometimes that requires a real look into, you know, what, what is it? How is that serving us? Exactly. Exactly. I think I read or heard somewhere that Canada just 
change their guidelines to, cause it used to be, yeah, seven to 10 drinks a week, seven, if you're a female, 10, if you're male, and now they change it to three. So yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, a good place to be at. Okay. Two more follow-up questions. I told myself I wouldn't let myself forget. Number one, as we're removing all these toxic products, how do you advise your patients to find healthier alternatives? Do you have them search environmental working group? Do you maintain a list of brands that you like? How's that conversation go? It's hard. I definitely feel like the resources on that are kind of limited and it depends who you ask. And my environmental working group is a great place to start, but I've also heard from people that they don't include everything. There's lots of great things that are not on there. Um, so that that's a good starting place. I have one brand branch basics that I use for literally everything in my house. It's my detergent. It's my soap. It's our dish soap. It's our, uh, uh, dishwashing soap. It's our all-purpose cleaner. It's our bathroom cleaner. It's our window cleaner. It's literally everything. So that has helped to kind of just take the guesswork out of, well, what am I going to use for each of these products? Cause it's pretty much our household, everything. Um, and then I, yeah, I do like to look at EWG. I'm not going to say every single thing in my house is clean. I will say finding a good shampoo and conditioner still have yet to find that. <laughs> Um, I only wash my hair like once a week. So I'm like, you know what, this is my splurge. So, um, there's that, but for, for most things, I would say branch basics has me covered. And then, um, EWG for some beauty product stuff like makeup and things. Yes. I have been on a clean beauty crusade. (laughs) It's real hit or miss. I remember you posting all about that. I found some really good things, but quite frankly, I found some really bad things. Uh, so I'll share more about that later. Some maybe I should do an episode dedicated to my should. endeavors and say um, all my reveal all the winners. Yeah, you really that's, should because I would definitely love a list of that stuff. I think that's helpful. Okay, stay tuned for that. Yes. The the next follow up question I have is: We need your hot take on the castor oil pack. Are you a fan? I am a huge fan. I Me absolutely too. love castor oil. I. I love it for everything. I'm like, oh my God, your car broke down. Did you try castor oil? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's everything. I love it. I think people don't realize how much it can help with constipation. Like we were Mm -hmm. talking about, it's maybe more commonly known for menstrual cramps, which it's it's great if you Mm -hmm. have really bad cramping, but constipation, it helps so much. I think in the type of person who they're like, really trying hard to make the dietary change and they're really trying hard to stay hydrated and they're doing a lot of the right things. Mm-hmm. Let's throw some castor oil on there. Absolutely. Yeah. It can help a lot with just bringing a little bit more blood flow to your gut and helping your microbiome out. So it, even though it's topical and it might seem like the silly, like not a high yield thing, it makes such a big difference. And not only that, I may, I see it make a huge difference for my patients with endo. Um, yes. for pain, it makes a really big difference for pain. So if you have pain and constipation, you're definitely a huge, you're going to notice a huge benefit with that. I don't know if this is placebo effect, but when I wear my castor oil pack, I wear one that I tie on and then I go to sleep and yeah. I sleep really well when I have it on. Oh my God. I love that. I, I feel like I've heard that from so many women. I never do mine at night. I, I tell, I tell all my patients, I'm like, sleep with it at night. And I never do it myself because it's really nice. I know it is. I, that's what I've heard. I just, I can't have anything that feels tight. Like even the temp drop armband. I'm like, 
I, it took me a while to get used to that. <laughs> mm, restriction. Okay. There's something there. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear you're a fan too, because I, I love a castor oil pack. So we always end our episodes with something fun. So I have a fun challenge for you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So the challenge is we need to make a gift basket for a friend who has heavy periods. Okay. I don't know why she revealed that to us, but we're doing a gift basket all around that theme. Okay. What are three to five items that we're going to put in her basket to make her life easier? Love it. Okay. Um, we're going to, of course, we're going to start with um, a large reusable water bottle. So she yes. doesn't have to fill it too often and she can, um, she might actually drink all of her water and get rid of that estrogen. So her periods are not as bad. Love that for her. Um, next thing would be a diffuser so she can get rid of any fragrances she might have in her house. Um, a, a diffuser that has a few different essential oils already set up. Smart. Um, obviously a subscription to Netflix, but it will definitely, <laughs> um, help her to pass some time because apparently now you can't even share your login anymore. So that's really sad. Oh shoot. Okay. Um, well, we got to get that for her then. Got to get her that. Um, the other one I would say is like maybe a, a veggie cook book so that you get a nice variety on how to cook veggies that actually taste good. So you can get a little bit more of that fiber in so we can focus on that microbiome and make some changes there. So you can excrete all that estrogen. Love. Maybe we should put a castor oil pack in there while we're at and it. And a castor oil pack. Yes. How could I forget that? <laughs> Everyone get your gift baskets ready because <laughs> we have laid out all the, the details for you. Yes. Dr. Bala, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing all of these pro tips and insights. And I think this will be so valuable to anyone listening who is dealing with heavy bleeding. Now we know we need to look at our liver. We need to look at our gut, probably get some hormones checked and really find a provider who's willing to stay curious. So thank you so much for being with me. It's so fun to see you today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.